Hi, this is Linus Sangren, and you're listening to the Cinematography Podcasts. The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft, and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts, Ben Rock and Ilya Friedman. Hey, Ilya, how's it going? Happy New Year, Ben. Happy New Year to you as well. It is 2023. Holy crap. It's been, uh, you know, it's it's nine years since we started doing this. It's about right. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, when we started the pandemic in 2020, if you, if you told me that we'd be doing plenty of episodes and it would be business as usual in uh, January 2023, I don't know if I would have believed you. And And here we are. Here we are. Well, I, you know, I remember at the time having a moment where we were discussing, like, we would always have people before the pandemic, we would always have people come to your office. So mm. we would never, we, we had done, I think, one remote interview ever before the pandemic started. And then when it started, you were like, well, are we going to send a microphone? Are we going to ship a rig for people? And I was like, screw that. Like, I'm listening to NPR and they're interviewing people over Zoom. Let's just interview people over Zoom, make it very easy for them. And what happened was, I'm not saying I was right, but in this case, uh, you were right. You, it's stop, okay. you take the credit. A, a stop clock is right twice a day. Yeah. In this case, what it meant was it opened us up to the entire world. And we got to interview people like Frederick Wiseman, who I don't think he comes to L.A. very often. So yeah. uh, no, it, it was a good plan and it's worked out really well. And I'm glad that the whole world has gotten much better at this, too. Excellent. Excellent. So, so uh, let's get into our close focus. No, no, no. Uh, Before we do that, who's on the show today? Oh, my God. How did I even forget? Uh, we have an amazing guest, and I believe this is his third time on the show, Linus Sandgren, who shot the amazing-looking movie uh, Babylon, which I've now watched twice. I saw it on the big screen, and then I got an Academy screener and watched it again. Ooh. And I liked it even more the second time. I was really... It, it had been after I had uh, interviewed Linus, so I was kind of looking for some of the stuff that he had talked about. But uh, just what an amazing piece of craftsmanship. I'm... I'm kind of bummed that the movie doesn't seem to be like finding an audience, but maybe if it gets some Oscar recognition, it'll be one of those movies that does find an audience. It's so gorgeous to look at. The cast is so amazing. And there's a few sequences in it that I would say are in my top five of films about what it's like to make a movie, hmm. even though even though it's about old timey filmmaking, you know, like it's about si the move from silent to sound. Do they all talk like this? They all talk like they, you know, <laughs> in a movie when they first became talkies. Yeah. Well, <laughs> the scene I'm talking about, and I think this scene alone is worth watching the movie, is it's the first scene that Margot Robbie's character does where she's recorded, where, the, where there's audio. Mm. And the audio tech is controlling the shoot and driving everyone crazy. And the camera makes so much sound that they put it in a box in, in like a giant wooden container and the operator has to be inside that and the lights already make the studio hot so it's even hotter inside there and basically it's like all the fun has been taken out of making movies these people were like winging it and having a good time and suddenly it's like margot robbie has to hit her mark and the director is like freaking out and the first ad has a meltdown in this scene that has been most certainly the internal monologue of every filmmaker I can. Certainly, I've had this internal monologue myself. 
and it's just a wonderfully constructed sequence beautiful to look at and the whole movie is just gorgeous as all hell and and Linus you know we've had him on the show before you don't often talk about range in terms of cinematographers because everyone is trying to no, I don't know of a single cinematographer who's like I only want to do comedy or whatever but it's like in the last year he did Don't Look Up No Time to Die and he did this those three movies are all masterfully executed and brilliant and wonderful. And also none of them look the same. They're just so well done. So I would encourage anyone listening to the sound of my voice to check out Babylon. I, I want it to do better than it's doing. All right. Well, I'm looking forward to seeing it. I haven't seen it yet. And I'm also looking forward to this interview. So uh, I'm glad that you got to spend some time with Linus. I think I did his last two interviews. Uh, ben, what are we talking about for uh, close focus today? Well, it was something that you brought up recently, and it was about sort of the evolution that we've gone through with video games and video game movies and the crossover. And, you know, when you look back to, you know, the 90s even, which, you know, is 30 years ago now, video game movies, movies based on video games, ran the gambit of being either just dismissed or uh, like the original Super Mario Brothers movie, which was just... um, crazy surrealist garbage Mm. (laughs) and and uh that movie if you haven't seen it just go find the trailer for it you'll be like that what does that have to do with mario at all i don't know what i'm looking at it's nuts (laughs) dennis hopper is in it plays a lizard or something it's insane and uh you know like recently the trailer for the new super mario brothers movie came out and you watch that and you go Oh, why didn't they think of that back then? Like, it's- uh, yes, famously, uh, it's going to star Chris Pratt. And yeah, the world of entertainment of video games and movies seems to be melding and merging in more than just one way and more than that video games are becoming more realistic or that people are looking to make another round of more interactive movies. I think really what's happening now is the movies are getting better based on video games. Sure. Just recently we had, uh, you know, Uncharted and Sonic the Hedgehog, which were both hits. But beyond that, I think it's that video games have gone from being sort of like a punchline or a minor diversion now to something that literally there's millions and millions of people spending many of their waking hours playing video games. And it's got, you know, all of this culture that, you know, trickles through various forms of social media, including its own social media in the form of like places like Twitch. So I am not going to pretend to be a uh, video game expert, even though I might have been able to take that claim back in the early 80s when uh, video games were much simpler and much fewer. Kicking everybody's ass at Galaga? Well, oh man. (laughs) Dig Dug? I don't want to I don't want to brag, but Gorf. I did take a picture of my high score because now there's a new version of Galaga, which is like networked and the scores are all out there. And I think I came in like 135th, which I thought was pretty freaking good for like the country. So, you know, I'm not wow. in the, I was in the top 10. But anyway, regardless, we're, I, did, we're getting, I didn't we're, realize that I was in the presence of such greatness. No, we're, you're not. So I, I don't think it takes too much to become number 135 on Galaga. But I'm not on. slagging Galaga, by the way. I, I've put hundreds of dollars in quarters into Galaga machines over the years. Love it. Uh, it, that music is addictive, I'll tell you. Uh, anyway, okay, but so so here's the thing. The movies are getting better, and also it's interesting to see the movies that are getting video game treatments. And, th- I mean, that's been going on forever. I remember, uh, of course, 
famously the E.T. video game. There was a whole documentary oh, yeah. ma- made about that, made by, by good, some of my clients, actually. Yeah. A good friend of mine made that. Uh, oh, she was okay. a producer on it. Uh, Kat Pasiak, who was the producer on... Uh, on 20 Seconds to Live, she was one of the producers on that on that documentary. Well, well, awesome. All I was going to say, though, is that the world is realizing that these video games are potentially multi-billion dollar franchises. And people want to have more than just a video game interaction with the characters and the content. And I, I'm going to say, like, if you look at the uh, animated cyberpunk, which we've talked about on the show, the animated cyberpunk series that uh, was released on Netflix, that became one of the most popular series on Netflix this year, at least uh, according to their own metrics, which they released, that became a huge, huge hit. And just looking at the future, like what's coming out, uh, highly anticipated, there's no release dates and not a lot of details, but popular franchise video game called Bioshock's becoming, uh, getting a treatment for uh, a movie right now. Same thing with another video game game series called Borderlands. The Last um, of Us is going to be a huge HBO series. It's about uh, to become a huge HBO series. Yeah, written a- by Craig Mazin, who did Chernobyl. And it kind of makes me wonder, like, what was the problem? Obviously, I wasn't working in the business in the in the 90s. But like, what was the problem in the 90s where they wouldn't even try to take the stuff seriously? You'd get stuff like Street Fighter, which is like, OK, I can see that you take that game and turn it into a kung fu movie. That's pretty straightforward. But it wasn't that long ago that uh, Dwayne Johnson was in the adaptation of Doom that completely flopped. And uh, what were they missing? What were they missing and what have they found? Uh, I think that there's there's more budget behind it. I think that decisions have been clearly made that these deserve the time and resources. And I think that also there's a generation of people who grew up with video games who don't want to see that sort of treatment. Uh, occur anymore that like professionals who, who work in the industry uh there's some real names attached to some of these projects too like neil blomkamp he's oh, doing nice. uh gran turismo which was a popular driving game five nights at freddy's that's getting sort of like a uh horror jim henson treatment and going to be coming to theaters uh sometime in the, in the not too distant future there's a lot of stuff that's uh sort of in the pipeline and i think hollywood says hey, there's already an established fan base. People are going to be perhaps reminiscent uh, because some of these games are not recent. These are these are older properties, but they had a certain amount of uh, magic that captured imagination. And even all these years, decades later, having a movie come out with they feel like there's a built in audience that's going to want to reward it and want to see it and want to try to capture some magic. And let me tell you, it used to be that comic book movies were not uh, were not real things. It, it really took a, a big change for the comic book to become a legitimate form of entertainment. And now it's it's video games. And I, I can't. Uh, kind of wait to see what's going to happen next with us. Well, uh, me either. I'm actually really looking forward to The Last of Us. I've been, uh, I listened to the Script Notes podcast, which Craig Mazin co-hosts. And so I've been hearing him talk about it for three years easily. And uh, if what he did on Chernobyl is any indication of what he's done with this material, it's going to be some pretty amazing stuff. And I, I just appreciate that we're finding uh, new, awesome ways to expand story worlds. That's what we're here to do, right? Yeah, I think that it's uh, it's exciting. And of course, Pedro Pascal is definitely his career is on fire right now. And uh, we've talked about him a bunch on the show and he's leading. He's uh, headlining The Last of Us. So for HBO Max, and I, I can't wait to see it. Hopefully HBO Max won't shelve it before we get a chance. <laughs> anyway, on that note, let's get to our interview with Linus Sundgren. The Cinematography Podcast Interview. 
All right, so we are here today again with Linus Sondgren. Thank you for coming back. It's uh, so exciting to have you back. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, your work just continues to blow my mind, like the stuff you do, and it's it's all so different. Like, I know that a lot of cinematographers are kind of uh, chameleon-like in that they don't do the same exact looking thing all, all the time. But I went into Babylon. I saw a screening of it last week. I, I had seen one trailer of it months ago, mm. hadn't really thought about it, and I had no idea what I was truly in for. This movie is insane. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the running time alone, it's like three hours and nine minutes. Yeah. When I tell people that, they're like, that's excessive. And I'm like, well, the movie's called Babylon. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's not called Moderation. So, right. and you, you'd worked with Damien Chazelle before, but tell me about how you were brought into this collaboration because it's just uh, an unbelievably huge undertaking and just gorgeous and lush. And oh my God. Oh, thank you. Yeah. I mean, like you said, I worked with Damien on two other films. He sent me the script while I was shooting No Time to Die, actually. And I read it. And uh, like you said, it's already the script is actually quite overwhelming and very special and original. So I was right away into uh, helping him do it. <laughs> so mm-hmm. And once we started, you know, it's a very uh, long script uh, with a, a lots of fast moving pieces. And it's different, right? It's like it's not a conventionally told story. It's very much Damien Chazelle uh, original type of uh, film where the story goes as he wished it to go. It's, it's not necessarily following uh, conventional rules, mm-hmm. uh, which to me is really refreshing uh, working with him because it's both sort of experimental, but also confident and hopefully perhaps better for the film to be told in his way. But it's, it, it has, I mean, it has a lot of, it's sort of a La La Land 2.0 in a way, or like maybe the the other side of La La Land. The other well, I, I was thinking about that because like yeah. La La Land owed a, a little bit, like pays homage to Singing in the Rain. And then yeah. not only does this movie sort of track a similar storyline to Singing in the Rain and that yeah. it's about the end of silent movies, but it even has a scene, like there's a scene where one of the characters goes and sees Singing in the Rain. So, yeah. so I, I kind of caught that uh, through line and I was wondering, yeah. I mean, I assumed it was intentional because it's... Yeah, yeah. But, but I think it's, it's really also more about, I think, Damon being a cineast, you know, I mean, he loves movies. He, he, yeah. he just loves cinema, you know, and, and that's what the film is about. It's about, despite the, the dark stories in this, you sort of want to leave with a feeling that cinema is important. And it's really interesting to work with Damien because he's so, he really does a, a huge dig into the subject he's, he's about to tell. And he's done so much research and and every film is different, you know, like between also between La La Land and The First Man, that was a, a dramatic change for me being used to or, or having worked with Damien on La La Land. And then we went into sort of a docu style uh, filmmaking, which mm-hmm. was so different from La La Land. Um, it's just because Damien wants to tell the story in the most appropriate way for that story. Right. It's like that's how he thinks. And then you could see a pattern or a style that he has. But I think it's. Always, yeah, it's always important to go to the root of the of, of the script and the story and, and try to figure out how should we tell this story in the best way. Uh, watching this movie also, I was drawn to two semi-recent movies, those being Boogie Nights and The Aviator. 
And it really feel, oh, yeah. it feels a lot like Boogie Nights right down to, I don't want to spoil anything for anyone, but there's a scene with Tobey Maguire that so mirrors a scene with Alfred Molina in Boogie Nights and even kind of comes around that point in the movie and that weird point of desperation for the main characters. Mm. Was there any discussion of those movies or were most of your references kind of older movies? I think uh, the references were, oh, we watched films together, like we screened the uh, film prints of like Chinatown Oh wow! to see sort of the world of that era and sort of that film is just brilliant. It was a beautiful print, actually. Um, we saw other films like There Will Be Blood. We saw Boogie Nights as well. There's a lot of films about LA to see the time yeah. period more. But you're really right in that Boogie Nights is, I think the tone is similar. It's like you have a, a story that is has a lot of filth and grit and darkness, but you, you live with a sort of love for all these characters. It's like that is what you need to ground, right? It's like the love for those characters. They're so memorable because they... You feel a lot of empathy with them. And this, I think that similarity is, is there, I think. It's like there's lots of darkness in here, but there's lots of love for characters. And yeah. I, let's talk about that opening sequence. I mean, like the opening title card happens like 30-something minutes into the film. And I even like looked at my watch. I was like, oh, my God, that was just so much to cram in. But it is a complicated sequence. It's a, it's a wild party. You have yeah. to establish... The world, you know, I love it that it takes place in Bel Air and it just looks like, you know, empty nothingness. Like for those <laughs> yeah. who aren't in L.A., like Bel Air is like a hugely developed area, it, you know, so it's like weird to see it. <laughs> I mean, yeah. as, as an Angelino, I, I have another, uh, you know, uh, level of appreciation. But like yeah. talk about like the construction of that opening sequence, because it's kind of insane and yet everything pays off it starts at the very beginning of the movie with people trying to get an elephant up a hill which is a an amazing metaphor yeah. for the whole movie <laughs> an almost yeah. uh Werner Herzog-esque metaphor oh totally and talk about like the construction of that first 30 minutes because in and of itself that first 30 minutes is just almost a movie just all by itself right I mean, we established a hot Los Angeles. It's empty. There's a newly planted palm trees, which is kind of also bizarre, right? Like in the middle of almost like a desert. Mm. But um, it's a scene also that's it's shot in many different locations, even though it looks like it's supposed to be one big kind of castle-like party house. And part of that is shot like out in the Lancaster exteriors. And then the interiors are shot in um, at Ace, uh, the, the lobby of Ace Hotel. And then we have parts on stage. But uh, yeah, there, there was a lot of variables. I mean, uh, we did break it all down in, in detail. The idea, right, is that we establish a lot of characters uh, in this party and the party itself is just insane. But um, it was complicated actually to, because we fell in love with uh, the lobby of Ace, uh, that Ace Theater. And that is a really complicated uh, location to shoot a lot of extras in if you want to do yeah. big camera moves. It's like yeah. crammed with hundreds of extras and, yeah. I, and I'm assuming the elephant was real. Uh, actually, the elephant was CG because it was puppeteered by puppeteers and then CG because we're not allowed to use uh, those exotic animals. It's CG. Wow. I don't, I don't think you're allowed to shoot with elephants in the really? period, I think. Yeah, I mean, it's prob probably better for elephants, but uh, yeah. well, well uh, kudos but, to your CG people because I just assumed it I was I know, real. right? Yeah, and, and also the, um, not the tusks, but the, the... trunk? The trunk, yeah. That was uh, puppeteered. Yeah, well, it looked, it like looked, it, that it looked like a physical effect because yeah, it's like so up in that guy's face. Yeah. <laughs> Oftentimes with Damien too, he's got like these really ambitious plans already planned in his head for 
how he wants to like move like crazy in the party and up high. He wanted to get really high angle, but never cut the camera and like keep moving. Right. So we tried to figure out in that location, cause it's the natural thing to think would be, uh, you know, some sort of crane move there in combination with Steadicam and it was just impossible to fit a crane in there. Um, so we ended up actually doing that with a cable cam, mm. uh, which we mounted up high cause there's like three levels of floors there and mounted the cable cam corner to corner so we could do the move from the beginning to coming down. And then we, we sort of tracked back between people and mm. all of that was obviously coordinated in order to see exactly which characters we needed to see and everything had to be sort of synchronized with the blocking. And so they don't, didn't smash into the camera. And then the camera pulls back, right? And then booms up and we see the whole party and then it pushes back into the trumpet and all on like musical cues. So we spent a little time like uh, rehearsing, you know, and, and blocking that and, and shooting one shots one day. And then there's a whip pan and the whip pan leads us to a Steadicam shot to do the rest of it the next day. But that whole sequence, yeah, it's, it's kind of rich and quite <laughs> ambitious. Yeah. I mean, cause it's, yeah. it's complex and it's huge. There's tons of extras and things, yeah. things that also, you know, would cause slowdowns like hitting really precise marks and also like yeah. just having lots of naked people around. Like, you know, there's ways that you have to be careful about that stuff and there's totally. all these different considerations. And like I said, it just, it feels like it's like a perfect clockwork. Like it's just moving. Right. And, and it did. I think that that's what made me think of the aviator is there's something kind of Scorsese ish about it, mm. but it's construction is just, it's so complex, even just that first 30 minutes and, the, and that's where the movie gets going. You And you just brought up something too that I hadn't really thought about, but that this movie has like all these big epic set pieces, but then we're like moving in on just like a close up of somebody in the middle of it. And we're keeping it really intimate with these characters and, and getting into them in the middle of like just intense chaos. The whole movie's mm -hmm. got these scenes where there's chaos in the background. Yeah. Was there like a specific approach you took to that where it's like, oh my, there's so much going on, but we only care mm -hmm. about what Brad Pitt thinks about it, you know? No, totally. But I think it's a combination. I, th I think it is a combination where we want to make sure that we always see everything. But in order to make a story emotional, you need to try to dig into the eyes of the characters and see what they're thinking or yeah. see what's going on in there. But if you only shoot tight shots on people, it, you may lose the sense of where you are or how it feels. And I think Damien pays a lot of attention to that too, to like, I mean, he's a musical storyteller. I think, I mean, he has a musicality to his, how he thinks about story. And he obviously also has music on his films before we shoot as well. Like, but regardless of the music, I think he's thinking musically. Uh, say for example, when they exit the, the party, right? It's like, She's like a free bird out there on a stage and it's dawn. It's just so like, it's, it's like, we wanted just that to feel like as much as, um, an amazing start for her career. Like she's just on stage, they're looking out into the world and it's this beautiful morning. It's like, and very romantic. And he comes out into her space, trying to see her closer and walks up to her almost like she's a wild animal. That's just amazing mm -hmm. to watch nearby. But we actually pan the camera around enough to, I think you sense the environment, you feel like all of that, but we're still in close-ups on both her and him. And it really helps to be curious, like have the camera try to tell something. But in general, I think it always helps when the camera tells a story, like tries to tell you something instead of relying on editing only, you know? Yeah, yeah. 
So I wanted to ask you about this, though, because I read about this online and I don't know if it's true and I don't know if you saw it. But supposedly Damien Chazelle and Damien Chazelle's family and Diego Calva rehearsed the whole film and filmed it on an iPhone. And re- did, did you see any of this footage? Yeah. Oh, really? <laughs> so they filmed yeah. like the whole film with him in their backyard, yeah. supposedly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Was that instructive? Did, did that... Uh... I think for them, I think it was, but it wasn't like... I mean, it was more for, I think, the acting, like um, mm. like a normal actor's rehearsal. But they, yeah, they did shoot on iPhone. Yeah. It just made me think a little bit about how, uh, you know, there's a story about how Coppola would do that uh, with, with his actors. He would bring them into a stage, mm. rehearse, block the whole movie, and then they would film it on video. Like this is mm. in the seventies and eighties, and then they would yeah. cut they would cut that together, and that was always the first draft. And I, I was like, man, I would love to see uh, Apocalypse oh, Now. Oh, interesting. Yeah, yeah exactly. Apoc- Apocalypse Now on three quarter inch. Yeah. Yeah, I'm just, I'm just, I was just curious. Well, I, it sounds like that wasn't that was used more as an acting tool than a cinematography tool. Yeah, so. no, no, totally. So there's another sequence that I mentioned earlier that I think is one of the sequences that people are going to be talking about for a long time because it is about filmmaking, but it so captures the frustration of being on a set and not being able to capture it. And it is (laughs) so for those who haven't seen it, it's the early days of sound recording and Margot Robbie, Margot Robbie's character is doing her first sound scene and they're in this big sound stage yeah. and they have microphones placed in such a way that it takes like 30 minutes to move them if she, if she wanted to miss her mark and the director's yeah. going out of their mind and, and the first AD, I don't know if they actually called them first ADs oh. back then, is like slowly unraveling. He becomes this, slowly he becomes the star of the scene because it's his job to just get the goddamn shot yeah <laughs> and it's he's amazing yeah and same with the sound man i think yeah. the, the, and margo there's like and the that, cameraman a, who's the cameraman's in like a hot box because yeah. they're they're blimping the camera and the only way they can do it is to have it in a giant box so it doesn't make sound yeah imagine can, yeah imagine and how the almost like the sound man was the star of the shoot back then because everyone was dependent on him and he yeah. became almost like the director yeah i mean a lot of that is obviously based on truth it's like when Damien see these boxes it's like oh it must have been so hot in there it's like no ventilation must have been super hot it's all these hot lights and hot for everybody and then you have these insane sort of rigs for the sound and there's no sound booms it was all on they were tied up to the rafters and I think um, you take that and then you exaggerate it a little bit and there's a lot of fun details you can use for creating that comedy of like an insane shoot (laughs) trying to make that work (laughs) And that I, I agree, it's like exactly how I feel sometimes, right? It's just like a lot of that was so fun because it's like it reminds us of how how it is, how hard it could be to shoot a film or how frustrating. Same with I mean the battle scene and the Oh yeah. The sunset and, and you're you're screwed because the sun is going down, you can't I mean, we gotta finish and the frustration or the, the stress for that. All of that breaks them down, but then the joy of screening the film and have film come and watch it could pay back for that. So I, I think, I mean, that's very much what the film is about, the contrast of that. And in, in a way, I kept thinking about this while I was watching it, like this movie is trying to encapsulate so much of film history. And in a sense, as the cinematographer of that, you're sort of one of the historians kind of telling us the story of film. Did that inform, and this is such a heady out there question, but did that inform any of your selection of film stocks to shoot on, lenses to use, the cameras that you shot on? Were any of those details part of the film history you were telling? 
actually in a way, in two ways, I think. I mean, one way was that the realism of how things looked back then had to be as accurate as possible. So when it comes to like camera equipment, which is obviously props and lighting, which is also props, but also lighting, it had to be like real looking and we wanted it to feel like authentic, all of that. And so we used, you know, real uh, old film cameras and we had, we couldn't find that many working 20s arc lights. There's arc mm. lights, but they're like later. So we had this gentleman at Warner who works with uh, historical lights. He helped us rebuild. He had like housings from old, huge arc lights uh, that were not working, but they were period correct. And we fitted them, he fitted them with HMIs, which is daylight, right? So we could use them in the movie. So the lights you see in the movie is usually HMIs inside of real uh, arc light housings, uh, both on the exteriors and on stage. So that part of it was real. But then we didn't want it to feel like a period movie, but like, I mean, also the language in the film is modern. Yeah. And the camera watching this, whatever goes on, is also more modern and sort of our times camera. But um, in a way, I think I read a book about lighting in the silent era. And it's, it's funny to see how these discussions between like producers and studios and what they want from the films versus what the cinematographers wanted and yeah, the yeah. union issues and all these things. And it sort of all goes around in circles. And a lot of the film is also about about that, right? It, it's sort of the rise and fall of characters. It's it's the beginning and the end of eras within the filmmaking. Uh, it's the beginning and the end of the, well, it's the end of the silent movies and the beginning of the talkies. And ever since then, uh, it's always been new inventions and new cameras and new lenses. And, and the same with those lenses, we modify them to be more bloomy as well. So we scratch the glass with uh, some fine metallic powder that you especially can see in like scenes like with Lady Faye, you know, when she's performing. Oh God, yeah. She's there with a, with a white. It's and, so uh, gorgeous. Like with her gloves. It's so striking. And the, yeah, and the light sort of bounces back off from her yeah. hand into her face and, but blooms out from the hand. It's like, whatever the lighting was in the scenes, I lit the room and, and if you saw them go into darkness, we just let them go into darkness. It's like, we didn't want to make it too perfected. You capture the emotional essence of the character as opposed to perfecting the image to the last sort of stroke. And I think that is sort of the mentality we had, that letting things be contrasty when it was contrasty and letting things be really bright when it was bright and not sort of adjusting to normalize things. Yeah, I hope uh, people get to see it in the cinemas because it's really made for the cinemas and not for video. Yeah, I find that, That's I mean, what I, wish. I, I, I hope people see it in the theater as well. And, and I feel like I want to go see more movies in the theater because uh, yeah. through the whole pandemic, we've gotten used to streaming everything at home. And there's that temptation to watch your phone or go in the kitchen mm. and get some food and not whatever. And I feel like these movies like your movie or The Whale, you want to like turn off your phone and just focus on this on this one mm. story for a few hours and kind of be transported the way that you have. Yeah, no, I've, I've been so happy watching movies in the theaters lately. It's, it's really where it should be for having a good experience of it. Yeah. Well, thanks again for coming back on the show. Congratulations. Uh, I'm, thanks. I, I'm assuming we're going to be seeing your name on the uh, nominated Oscar list uh, here, here <laughs> in a few months. Congratulations, and I hope uh, lots of people come out and see the movie. Thank you, Ben. That was awesome. 
So that was Linus Sondgren. Thank you again for coming on the show, Linus. And uh, again, please go out and watch Babylon. It is something that is definitely very appreciated on the big screen. It, it's three uh, hours and eight minutes. Yeah, nine minutes. Three nine hours minutes. and nine minutes. Okay. Sorry, that includes uh, the yeah. credits. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that doesn't include any credits. What, so what, really, what about like post-credit sequences? Are there like two or three of those? Yeah, the, there's <laughs> at the end. Uh, yeah, Margot Robbie is brought in to be one of the Avengers. Mm. It's, it's a little it, weird. Yeah. <laughs> and now, short ends. So now we should uh, move into our short ends, our pet obsessions of the week. Ilya, what is your pet obsession this week? I just finished season one of Kindred on Hulu which is, uh, of course, an FX series based on the Octavia Butler book, originally published in uh, 1979. And there's already been some feedback about this because it strays a bit from the book. It's not, you know, it's definitely inspired by and it covers uh, the same sort of themes. And there is, it's not hiding the fact that this is the source material for it, but it does go off in different directions. And I got to say that it's about time travel. It's about slavery. It's about, you know, looking at uh, not exactly the best moments in our Wait, nation's it's about history. Time travel and slavery. Are you sure you're not talking about Yule Log? <laughs> I'm sure I'm not talking about Yule Log, but I did watch Yule Log. It was great. Right? Yeah, it was great. So for, for anyone who, who didn't hear our discussion of Yule Log, uh, go back to last week. Uh, but anyway, here, here's the thing. Kindred, to me, it feels like a really incredible jumping off point. In the same way that like Watchmen was a wonderful jumping off point that also dealt with like, you know, the ugliness of our nation's history and science yeah. fiction. And it and it did it in such a, a fantastic way. Uh, Kindred really I think that there's a bunch of people who who love the book who are not going to get past the differences and the creative liberties that were taken. But it's a different media. It's a different medium. I actually I fully believe that creative folk should utilize the best aspects of the medium that they're working with to tell their story. And I think that they do a really good job telling the story here in this serialized television format. And you should give it a chance. I think that the world that they are building, the world that they've put forth has all the potential to be like another Handmaid's Tale. It has all the potential to be this thing that people come back to over and over again in a lot of different ways. And of course, the first season, they really keep you in the dark. They don't explain exactly what's happening. There's sort of this discovery process that the main character goes through to figure out what's going on with them. But the performances are great. The production is great. Everything about it, it feels like a very coherent world. And even though no one alive today was uh, alive back in the, the mid to late 1800s, I think they do a really good job of capturing that world. And then also the juxtaposition of, you know, 2022 Los Angeles and how the ripples and effects of our collective trauma still carries through. They've crafted the story and that you're hanging on. I mean, like it's like an edge of your seat type of thriller. And I want to go back for more. I want to go back and I want to see oh, wow. how, how how these and I can't say that I think I've ever seen any other movie about slavery that I really want to revisit that I want to go back to and I want to see this some more because boy I need to get some more of the effects of slavery as like as visceral and terrible it is uh, as as the the representation of it is in this story uh, there's all these other elements at play and I got to say that the horrors of slavery are on full display and it it is an interesting counterpoint to after just watching like emancipation and there's a lot there's a lot of stuff at this time of year actually that that all is sort of the 
uh, you know, collective traumas of this country. But I would say give Kindred a try. I think that there's a lot of people out there who, who don't necessarily want to go down a slavery bent sort of thing. And I think you should. This is not like taking your medicine. This is good entertainment. The characters are wonderful. And it's television being crafted at a, at a very high level. It's totally worth your time. I, I haven't seen it yet. And based on that endorsement, I'm definitely going to check it out. I've been hearing about it for a while. So I was saving this moment for the end of it here, too, because, of course, the showrunner is Brandon Jacob Jenkins, who is also known for being a producer of Watchmen and Outer Range, which I know you liked both of those very much. Yeah. So true. Uh, true. So, yeah, definitely. I would say g- give it a shot. I think you might you might really enjoy it. Excellent. Excellent. So, Ben, what is your uh, short end this week? So mine is a weird YouTube rabbit hole I fell down. And uh, so in 1991, before I went to film school, Siskel and Ebert hosted a show that they used to do every year called If We Picked the Winners. And because I was going into film school the next year and I was hanging out with all the people at film school, I got invited to go to this screening. And I don't know why it popped up in my YouTube, but I'm like, I wonder if you can see me in any of the audience shots. I wonder if I could see myself. And so I hit play and first audience shot. I'm like, there I am. I got a mullet. I'm wearing a black jacket. It's totally me. Uh, But because I watched it, YouTube just started serving me up Siskel and Ebert shows from Mm. all ages of Siskel and Ebert. And let me tell you, it is so crazy to go down a Siskel and Ebert rabbit hole. For those of you who are of a certain age, uh, too young to remember this, every week, Since the 1970s, Gene Siskel and Roger Ebert would do a show. Uh, It had a few different titles over the years. It was originally Sneak Previews, and I think at the last one it was At the Movies. And it was the two of them often arguing, like often kind of mean in their arguments with each other. Like they'd put each other down or talk about what shitty taste the other one had all the time. And so like over uh, the holiday, while I was uh, in Dayton, Ohio, a few days longer than I thought I would be there for, uh, YouTube just kept like offering this up to me and I just kept watching more and more of them. And it's interesting to go back because Gene Siskel died in 1999 and Roger Ebert, I want to say died in like 2013. Yeah, I was going to say 2012, 2013. And he was still he still did his show for a while. And then he had uh, some kind of cancer that ended up having him remove his lower jawbone. And so he kept reviewing movies, but he wasn't on television anymore. But he kept doing the show and he did it with Richard Roper. And Richard Roper is a great critic. But it actually made me and is continuing to make me kind of reassess sort of the place of film criticism in our culture. Because we had on the show, we had Leonard Maltin, who's, you know, one of the greatest film critics of all time. Uh, We had him on our show. And I feel like the, the art and craft of film criticism has kind of fallen off a bit. And well, people, if you have a podcast, you can be a film critic, right? Well, that's, I mean, in part, it's because of the democratization. So there's so many people on whatever the current video channel is, yeah. be it TikTok or Twitch or YouTube. Obviously, there's tons of YouTube channels where people are tearing movies apart and in some cases doing it quite scholarly. But, you know, we didn't have that many film critics. Also, like most of the film critics you'll talk about from that period of time are white dudes. Mm-hmm. You might get your Elvis Mitchell in there here and there. But it's mostly white dudes, and they're coming from a very white dude point of view. And sometimes you'll hear Siskel or Ebert say something that's a little cringe where you're like, uh, do you need to talk that long about Bo Derek being naked? Uh, <laughs> whatever. But it's an interesting 
it's an interesting experiment to kind of go back down that rabbit hole to be like, okay, you know, this is them talking about who were up for the Oscars in 1990. You know, did they prefer Goodfellas to Dances with Wolves or whatever? And a lot of the movies they're talking about, too, like if you go through it and watch, you know, I I obviously haven't watched all of them, but if you just watch a regular old episode of Siskel and Ebert from, you know, the mid 90s or something, late 80s, you'll see movies that you're like, oh, the French lieutenant's woman forgot it existed. Uh, and also lots of movies that you just fully that I couldn't name off the top of my head just because they were like movies that were like pushed through the theaters and it's like they never were again. It's interesting to see their biases. I always complain about kind of a bias against horror movies. It's very much if a horror movie comes out, they often trash it. Uh, although uh, I was very flattered to see that they did like the Blair Witch Project. Uh, Siskel was no longer with us, but on that show, they liked the Blair Witch Project. But they trashed the original Evil Dead, you know, the Sam Raimi Evil Dead. Mm-hmm. But it's something anyone can do with an internet connection. Just get on YouTube and look up Siskel and Ebert. If you are uh, too young to have been a regular viewer like I was, you could still find them. And it's just kind of interesting to hear kind of two uh, newspaper guys go at it, often acrimoniously about what each one of them thought of what movie. So check it out. I think it's a wonderful short end. And uh, I remember watching Siskel and Ebert because if you were a movie fan growing up in the eighties, you didn't have a lot of outlets in like middle America and stuff, but Siskel and Ebert or at the movies, their show was syndicated and it was everywhere. And you could get a little sort of slice of film criticism every week when the new movies came out, which was, which was a lot of fun. No, it was great. And it's interesting because you watch it for the movie reviews, but also you watch it for their personalities. That's and true. they're kind of unlikely guys. They're not horrible on camera, but they're not. You wouldn't cast them out of central casting to be like, hey, let's have guys who look appealing on camera. And, you know, today, if you were doing a show like that, you definitely wouldn't have two middle aged white guys who, you know, kind of had identical backgrounds. One wrote for the Chicago Tribune. The other one wrote for the Chicago Sun-Times. You know, they're not even from different cities. No, but I think Uh, that's also why the show happened. I think the show was produced in Chicago. And, you know, I got to say that their contention was part of the reason people tuned in, I think. And the fact that they had different tastes and that quite often they would split votes on things and that contention. And there sometimes were insults like they were openly hostile to each other on occasion. And there wasn't a lot of like stuff kind of like that where you had two people civil, but like, you know, basically insulting each other's taste right across from each other. It was like watching a married couple that had lost all of its love. (laughs) And and uh, you can I think find... they still had a little bit of love. They made it through the show. No one like got up and walked out. There was no like, you no, know, nobody did. But I remember once I think that they were on Letterman or something. And whoever the talk show host was, was like, so you guys friends in real life? And they both were like, no, not at all. No, not in the least. <laughs> I, I, I've heard that they played that up, though, too. I don't. I don't oh, really? know. I've, I've heard that they both disliked each other and they liked each other. So I, I don't know exactly. They clearly weren't, you know, they re- understood they were a package deal. They couldn't just like go off and have the same magic if they didn't have their counterpoint. So no, no, absolutely. But anyway, totally uh, a total uh, YouTube rabbit hole worth going down. So Ilya, where can people find you on the internet if they would like to do so? They want to track me down. They can track me down at Hot Rod Cameras, hotrodcameras.com. We just got done getting a wonderful testimonial from someone on a, a studio that we built for them. So, so that was a lot of fun. Hopefully I'll have that put together here shortly and uh, out into the world and uh, more studios all the time. So uh, that is one really nice thing about the uh, creator economy and more and more people getting serious about their YouTubes and their socials is that they're discovering that sometimes a studio space uh, in their own house isn't practical and they, they might need to go to a studio outside of 
for their house in order to get done whatever they want to get done. And places like YouTube have done built some incredible spaces. But if you aren't near a YouTube stage and you need to have access to that sort of space and size, there is now a growing number of people out there building studios. And Hot Ride Cameras has been helping people do it, which is wonderful. So Ben, where can people find you? You can find me at benrock.com. You can find all my social media connections. Uh, a couple of people have uh, hit me up on Twitter recently with uh, follow-ups to our short ends and stuff like that. Hmm. I'm at Neptune Salad on Twitter and also on Mastodon, uh, which I may be slowly transitioning towards as Twitter is mismanaged into the ground. Yeah. So, Ilya, who should we thank for uh, all of the festivities that are to come? Oh, man. Let, let's thank our trio of heroes. Uh, we got to thank uh, yeah Ben Katz, who edits the show and makes us not sound like idiots. We got to thank Kays Alatracci, uh, music by Kays.com. Kays is creating incredible music and doing all kinds of just fascinating stuff, including going down the, the rabbit hole of AI art. I've been enjoying seeing some of the stuff that he's been doing. Reach out to Kays. Uh, hit him up say, hey, I I heard the guys on the podcast uh, talk about you and your music and uh, just saying hello. That's all you got to do. Yeah, that's it. Nothing fancy. Yeah, it'll it'll be fun. And then, of course, lastly, never leastly, Alana Cody, who has also been watching Kindred and also uh, gave it a a two thumbs up and uh, our tribute to Siskel and Ebert there. So, yes, Alana Cody, of course, uh, producer extraordinaire. She is getting tons of new interviews lined up for us because, of course, it's Sundance in a couple of weeks. And so that's about to happen. So we've got a whole new crop of of movies and things that we're going to be seeing here shortly. And also we're we're still up to our eyeballs in Oscar season stuff. We have have, uh, this week alone. We have two major Oscar contenders that we're supposed to be talking to. Yes, uh, January is a, is a busy month. January, we got a lot of stuff happening. So, so Ben, I think that just about does it for us. Take us out. Thanks for listening. This has been the Cinematography Podcast, presented by Hot Rod Cameras. Find your next camera, lens, or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening.